Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Psalm 39. And I've titled this this morning, The Day We Discover the Why. The Day We Discover the Why. And I'm going to start out with a quote by one of my favorite authors, Mark Twain. And Mark Twain says, The two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. The two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. It's my prayer this morning in our short time together that we'll go a long way in determining whether Mark Twain was right with his comment. For the last two weeks, I was privileged enough to teach uh, Kevin Mobley's class in the Acts Sunday School class, and our focus there was on David's darkest hour as we looked at 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17. And at that time, we saw how mighty David was forced to flee Jerusalem after the attempted coup by his son Absalom, if you remember that story, David's chief counselor and confidant, Ahithophel, had left and followed the king's son. And to add insult to injury, a Benjamite by the name of Shammai, if you remember that story, had stopped him along the road as he fled the city, cursed David, threw rocks at him, threw dust up in the air, basically had a good old hissy fit. And he accused David of being responsible for all the blood that had run throughout Saul's household. David's response to that incident was rather interesting and astonishing. Surprisingly, David said that the cursing received from Shammai that day was actually from God. It was God's cursing. But at the just maybe, the Lord may look upon the wrong done to me and by me and that the Lord might repay me with good for his cursing of that day. 2 Samuel 16, 12. Shammai was but the second cause. David saw through to the first cause. I believe at that time, David was real ha having a real Romans eight twenty eight moment. That cursing actually served as a slap to his face. It seemed to have opened his spiritual eyes to see that it was God in his providence and in his presence who was working all throughout David's life. He just hadn't realized it yet. Derek Thomas says at that moment, David no doubt still suffered from the lingering guilt over Bathsheba and her husband. And that certainly seems to be true because it becomes more obvious when we see that David recalled the consequences given by God in 2 Samuel 12, 10. God had told David, the sword shall never depart from your household because of this sin. The evil would rise up against you even from within your own household. And David's wives would be given over to his neighbors and the child born of that relationship would die. David knew his sins had found him out. Second Samuel 15, we saw that God gave David predominantly three things that he often does for us also as we go through our darkest hour. First of all, he gave David what he needed under pressure. In David's case, he needed wisdom. Secondly, he gave David a friend, a confidant, somebody that would stand beside him and with him. And thirdly, God gave David hints of his presence and providence all along the way, if he would but look at it. First 10 chapters of 2 Samuel record David's finest hour. Uh, he slew the giant. He had risen to the throne. 
and he had won many battles. You may recall Dr. Masters several weeks ago had preached a, uh, preached a wonderful sermon entitled David's Finest Hour. Well, because of his sins, it all came crashing down. Life seems to work that way, doesn't it? It's full of ups and it's full of downs. I believe that Dennis had also mentioned in your study of uh, Dr. Luke Gospel that even the life in the ministry of Christ Jesus had it ups and it downs. Now, scholars believe that Psalm 39, as we open there this morning, is written by David as a reflection of these exact events that we've just recounted. And that's where we want to look this morning. I must be honest, though, in studying David's life and reading his Psalms, I've always remained perplexed and have often questioned how could this same David be a man after God's own heart? Have you ever questioned that? That has perplexed me for quite a while. At times, he seems so weak, almost feeble. He kowtows, he runs, he cries out, he fears, he trembles, he begs and barters with his enemies almost to a fault. All of this is the human David. But I believe we find the answer to my question this morning in Psalm 39. Here we see David, a man who has found the answer. So what is the key to the life that David discovered? That's what we will look at this morning. What is the key to the life that David had discovered? He shares this morning with us his aha moment as he's led by the Holy Spirit and there's no other way but by the Holy Spirit and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because we know God ordains, the Son accomplished, and the Holy Spirit applies. And we're seeing that this morning in David's life. God, may we learn to live our remaining days with this key in our hearts. So let me read, if you will, with me, Psalm 39. What is the measure of my days? To the choir master, Jehudan, Psalm of David. I said I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. I was mused. The fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. And he starts a prayer. Oh Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. And now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I spent by my hostility of your hand. And when you discipline a man who, with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you. 
a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 39, if you know, begins with the title, What is the measure of my days? What is the measure of my days? Why am I here? In plain words, Psalm 39 is telling us life is hard and short. This has been listed as one of what they call the instructive psalms. Psalms like Psalm 1, 19, 119 are instructive psalms. Its theme, like Psalm 49 and 90, is one of the vanity of life. And you can almost hear the Ecclesiastes, echoes of Ecclesiastes all throughout. It contains really three sections. Verses 1 through 5 is a section, 6 through 11 is a section, and then 12 and 13 verses are a concluding section. And they're all separated by what's called a selah. Now, most scholars believe that the word selah means stop, stop, pause, meditate. Let me think before I go on any further, what is going on here? What has been said? What has just been sung? In the first section, verses 1 through 5, we see the predicament that David had found himself. No doubt it could have been a result of Absalom that we just referred to in Psalm in Second uh, Samuel, that background that we set this morning. David has come to a point where he finally decides to take a stand in his darkest hour. Here he draws a line and declares, we will no longer, no longer will I allow the frustrations to cause others to sin before God. He takes stock of his life and concludes that he's even failed to do good at the times that he remained silent when he should have said something even to do good. And he didn't take the stand. John Calvin writes, David intimates that his heart has been seized with extreme bitterness of grief, which forced him to give utterance to complaints with too much vehemence and ardor. In other words, his heart is breaking and he is frustrating and he's anger, angry over the way he's responded to what he's seeing as God acting in his life. From now on, he's saying, even idle chit-chat, small talk, David realizes that his frustrations with the ups and downs of life by both his mouth and his silence have provided fuel for the enemies of God all along the way. He's allowed his inward passions and his anger toward God to explode into hurtful words of destruction, especially before the wicked and unbelievers. But here he vows, no more will words anger toward God pass through these lips. Ephesians 4.29 provides us with a scriptural text. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This revelation and realization, I think, is one for all of us to consider as we walk through our deep despairs and angers and hurts in our darkest hour. David realizes that his sins voiced by others were really pointed toward God and that he should be brought before God in confession. And he does just that in this psalm. Here he's going to make two requests in prayer beginning in verse 4. He says, Lord, give me an understanding in what really is this brevity of life. Number one, measure my life. Give me understanding and I'm realizing I'm a vapor. 
It's all for nothing. It's so short. What's the meaning of my life? And secondly, he says, give me understanding into the hope that is on the other side of this life. How wonderfully awesome will be life beyond. In verses four, five, and six, he prays, I've come to realize that this life is but a hand breath. In the spans of all time and eternity, my life is but four fingers on the hand. I'm nothing. That was considered a hand breath. A hand breath was your four fingers. And if you look at all of time and eternity, David's saying, that's how big I am in all the spans of time. My life is but a shadow. We work and we toil and we break our backs. We build up and we heap down stuff only that others may take it all away when we're gone. And he's asking himself the question, what do we do it for? And his conclusion is all for nothing. Came into the world naked. I'm going to leave that way. It's all been for nothing. Matthew Henry writes, all time is nothing in God's eternity, much less our share of time. Realizing his frailties and after beginning his prayer that ends in uh, verse five, there's a selah, if you notice that. He's saying, stop. Let me take stock of what I'm saying. What's the truth of life? What have I been doing? What's going on? So as he enters in this prayer, he begins his prayer in verse four, but in verse five, he stops. It's almost like he has a lump in his throat. But he's gonna go very quickly from praying to weeping. You ever been in that situation? Your low points in life, you're going through the darkest times of your life and the realization hits you, who's in control? Why am I fretting? Why am I upset? And he begins to pray. But here his voice breaks. There's a lump in his throat. In the eyes of men, this David had slew the giant. He became the chosen king and he led his people. But in the eyes of God, he had come to realize my life has been nothing. What am I fretting over? And in the beginning of verse seven, we see that his prayer changes drastically as the reality, the brevity, and the meaning of his life disturbs his mind and his heart as well it should with us. Matthew Henry writes, the psalmist, having meditated on the shortness and the uncertainty of life and the vanity and vexation of spirit that attends all the comforts of life. Here in these verses, he turns his eyes and heart heavenward. He takes hold of happiness and the satisfaction in God. My hope is in thee, he says. Note when the creature confidences fail, it's comfort to know we have a God to go to, a God to trust, and we should thereby be quickened to take so much faster the hold of him by faith. Only when he understands how short life is can we avoid wasting our own lives. To live reality and to live a meaningful life, stop spinning your wheels on nothing. I'm not the center of the universe. It's not about me. My life is but a vapor, a grain of sand, a drop in the ocean. It's nothing, and I realize the why of my life. Why am I here? Being king and having stuff to put it in the old southern vernacular just ain't what life is about. That ain't what it is. And that's what David is finally asking and seeing in himself. David's having a real aha moment 
and the Holy Spirit's working with him and he's sharing that moment with us right here. In verses 17 to 13, David continues his prayer and he says in essence, God, don't let me become another fool. After contemplating the brevity of life, he says, Lord, I want to wait on you and trust in you and you alone. And he's passing from anger here to weeping. You can almost feel the weeping of the tears coming down David's cheeks. It's finally breaking him. He traces the calamity of life to his past transgressions. And he asked the Lord in verse 12, hear my cry, won't you? And give an ear, remove your chastisement from me, even though I deserve it. Now I know who's done it. And you've done it all in love. I've been a stranger, a sojourner. I've wandered all before you and I've acted the fool like my heavenly fathers. And he's referring there to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before him. The rod had to be used for their good and your glory. Charles Spurgeon captures the pictures for us when he says, when we kiss the rod, our father always burns it. That's kind of a funny saying, but he says, when we kiss the rod, our father always burns it. Now by that he means when you finally give in and finally understand the reason, the ways of God's discipline, his presence, his providence, his patience in correcting us, only then can our heavenly father burn that rod, that rod of discipline that he used to discipline us. If we confess, obey, and turn by saying that God chastens those whom he loves, only then is God free to throw that rod into the fire and burn it, never having to use it again. Now, unfortunately for some of us, <laughs> most of us probably, he has to find another rod because I'm gonna do bad again and I'm gonna need correcting again, but he's burned the last one. And I think it's so important for us as Christians to realize that is over. Once we put that, once I've asked for God's forgiveness, once I have confidence that he's my God and he's doing everything for my good and his glory, he burns that rod. You know, I think there's a wonderful picture when you picture back. Do you remember the days when your parent or grandparent would go out back? Now you have to be a little older to remember this. They go out in the backyard and they go to the switch bush and, and cut off a switch and take you to the woodshed. Do you remember those days? That's exactly what's being said here. I bet you still remember those days. And I thought at the time, you know, my parents were wrong. It really did hurt me worse than them. <laughs> remember that? But as a child grew and became a parent, only now years later do we realize, no, you know what? It really did hurt our parents to have to discipline us. David here is confessing just that. He finally gets it. You know what? It hurts God to have to discipline his children. It breaks his heart. But by it and through it, he is preparing me in this short life and for the life to come for all eternity. I'm kind of reminded of the Righteous Brothers song. I, uh, I know some of you in here remember the old Righteous Brothers. They had a beautiful song. It was entitled, He. And in that song, I probably have time to read all of it, but I won't. But in that song, he is singing and he says, he still finds time to hear a child's first prayer. Sainter sinner calls and always finds him there. Though it makes him sad to see the way we live, he'll always say, I forgive. 
Now that theology there is a little off. Saint and sinners didn't hear the sinner's prayer, but you get the picture. And the picture is, you know what? It breaks God's heart. It really does. To see how we fight him and don't realize that he's in control. And we get all upset over this short thing called life that is just a vapor. I'm here and I'm gone. In the expanse of all God's eternity, I'm not that big. And all this that he's created. And I get so upset. And I throw my hissy fit like Shammah. And I try to throw up dust before God. I throw rocks at God sometimes in the way I talk. Or better yet, in things I don't say when I should take a stand. David's having a real aha moment here. He's saying, ah, there's something to this life. And it should be ours. This verse brings his confession, revelation, and his prayer all together. So he's got this revelation on one hand, and he's got this confession on the other hand, and he begins to pray. Now, if you notice, I skipped verse 9. Look with me at verse 9, because here's the key. Verse 9 says, I am mute, silent. I do not open my mouth. For who did it? Who's done? I'm God did it. I'm silent. I do not open my mouth because I realize something. This thing called life, the brevity of life, the ups and downs of life, finally I get it. You have done it. And that's his aha moment. Tucked in between this discourse on the brevity of life and his prayer of forgiveness, David gives us the key to life. The key to living, this one, is to prepare for the next one. What's David's key? What he's realizing with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the key to living this life is in preparing for the next one. Selah. Meditate. Think. What does it mean? Thomas Brooks wrote, this is a prudent and holy silence. It sees God and acknowledges Him as author in all our afflictions. Those who see the hand of God in their afflictions will with David lay their hands upon their mouths. 2 Samuel 16, 11 and 12. I believe it could be right here at this very spot, at this very hour, where David's name is written in the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11 could be right here at this moment that David joined that cloud of witnesses who ran the race, finished the course of life, and by faith looked up and saw the face of Jesus. And he believed. Look at verse 13. For David says, I believe, this is a Philippians 2.13 moment, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work His good pleasure. Say that again. He's having that moment here as we look, look away from me that I may smile again and I depart and am no more. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work His good pleasure. Verse 13 ends with a smile on David's face. Before I depart and am no more, I want you to know, I know, you've done it. 
Aha. Selah. The key to this life. The key to eternal life is by faith alone in Christ alone. The key to living this life is to understand and accept that God is sovereign, in control. He alone rules and overrules. He alone writes redemptive history, both yours and mine. All of my life, it's been you. Before the foundation, you knew me. You created me. You chose me. You sent me up the mountain and you brought me down into the valley. Oh God, it's always been you. Your sovereignty and by your providence and mercy and grace. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? How long? Isaiah 6, 9. I think the Gaithers, remember the Gaithers? Roger, I keep looking at you because I know you go back to all these old songs. You remember the Gaithers? I think the Gaithers also, in a sense, wrote of this aha moment in David's life and also in ours because they said, and then one day, I'll cross that river. I'll fight life's final war with pain. And then his death, we'll sing it, don't we? And then his death gives way to victory. I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know he reigns because he lives. I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Ah, Selah. Got it. It's not about me. It's always been about him. Sam Clemens, Mark Twain, I believe you were right. One little minor correction. The two most important days in your life are the day you were born, reborn, and the day you find out why. Wrap that around your hearts. Sila. Meditate on it. Up the mountain, in the valley, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The aha moment is realizing this is not about me. It's about God using me. Take the pressure off. All this thing we fight for in life and, and all the stresses we put ourselves through, God's in control. Let him reign. David is saying, from my mouth may only praises come even when I'm frustrated. He had a broken heart many times. But his aha moment was his realization, oh, I'm breaking God's heart. It hurts him. 
it hurts him every time I do that. I got to add one thing because we have time. This is another that you may recall. Let me go back to that E because I want to read from the Righteous Brothers. Let me close with this. Not that the Righteous Brothers are our theological servants. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying, somebody had written an awful good wordy message back in the 70s that the Righteous Brothers sung called He. He can turn the tides and calm the angry sea. He alone decides who writes a symphony. These authors had to be Presbyterian. He lights every star that makes the darkest bright. He keeps his watch all through each long and lonely night. He still finds the time to hear a child's first prayer. Saint or sinner calls and he always finds him there, though it makes him sad to see the way we live. He'll always say, I forgive. He can touch a tree and turn the leaves to gold. He knows every lie that you and I have ever told, though it makes him sad to see the way we live. He'll always say, I forgive. Comments, questions for this Sunday school hour. David's precious moment he shares with us. Psalm 39. Aha. Selah. Take the pressure off. Not about me. It's about him. Lord God, as we close, we thank you, dear God, for this precious hour. We thank you that you've allowed David by pen and inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write and leave us your love note for us. How long, O oh Lord? How long is it going to take for it to get through to my heart? Stop trying to work and do things even to please you. And we work and we toil and we work and we strain. And this thing called life, if we're not careful, it just captivates us and it takes our eyes off of you. You guide our steps. You guard our hearts as David prayed for here. You give us the light to see through the darkness. It's only my vanity and my fears. that, Dear God, I turn away from you and I look at myself and say, I got this, I can do this. And I, we don't even remember why we're here. David's reminding us right here. You're here because before the foundation of the world, I have chosen you. I have called you. Would you please stop breaking my heart? I've done it all for you. You can see my heart on the cross. That's the reason. And you're here that others may know that cross. I got you. Everything is mine. Live for me. You can face tomorrow. Because you understand that God his sovereign, His providence, His mercy and grace. Call us and fill us and provide for us. We thank You, dear God, for this hour. We ask now for Dennis and his family as they travel back and forth for that funeral this morning, we ask, or this afternoon, we ask, dear God, that You will use Dennis in a mighty way to share the gospel as we know He will that will open up God's Word in anyone there that does not know the saving power of Christ Jesus, that there is a God who has sent His Son to do it all. May the Gospel be proclaimed 
and then bring fruit to that teaching this morning, that at preaching. Return them safely to us. We ask that you'll be with the Bailey family. You've blessed us in such a wonderful way to have them here. What a blessing they have been to us. And like David says here in verse 13, because you have sent them through our path, we can look up to heaven with tears in our eyes, but we have a smile. Again, you have provided people we needed at the right hour and the right time. Bless the new church as they go to Georgia. And we ask, dear God, that you'll bless us with the next man that will fill this position for the honor and glory of your name to spread the gospel right here at Second Presbyterian Church at the corner of Renton River. Provide, won't you, dear God, quickly. In Jesus' name we pray.